1996, at the age of 23, Sophia Evans began to experience unexplained slurred speech as well as loss of balance. This was followed by exhaustion, tingling in her fingers, and ultimately loss of control in her fingers and hands. Her doctors had no solution, so she went to a neurologist and was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Over the next seven years, her health went up and down with hospital stays and various medical procedures, trying to stabilize her condition. She had to give up her career. She was unable to spend time with and care for her children or her husband. She endured extensive medical procedures and extended stays in hospitals. She eventually started to feel better after the first seven years and was able to begin working some, but, after thir but 13 years after her initial diagnosis, her old neurologist retired and a new doctor reviewed her case. His conclusion? She had been misdiagnosed. Now, how would you have reacted to this news? May, you may think it was a relief, but not for Sophia. This is what she wrote. I was furious. I pictured all those years bedbound, the injections, the impact on my children, husband, and career, and all for what? In a haze of incomprehension, I demanded answers. The doctor's replies were vague. He suggested that my symptoms may have been caused by a lack of vitamin D, which a simple blood test would have confirmed and a heavy dose of supplements would have fixed. Sophia had effectively lost 13 years of her life because of a misdiagnosis which led to improper treatment. The problem in medicine must be properly identified and then properly treated, and if proper identification evades us, the treatment may be too little too late. Like in medicine, this principle is vitally important for continued growth in our spiritual lives. If we are going to grow, we must identify the problem and treat that specific problem. Misdiagnosing a medical problem is serious, but how much more misdiagnosing or mistreating a spiritual problem? And so the problem that we are going to look at this morning is a universal problem that we all face. Namely, we need to grow in maturity. We all find ourselves at different points in the Christian life, but if we take a step back and honestly assess where we are, even the most mature saints among us will say, I need to grow and keep on growing. And if anyone thinks that he has arrived at perfect maturity, let him take heed lest we ask his wife. <laughs> the Christian life is a race to the finish. And just like a race, we cannot take days off, we cannot rest on our laurels, but we must press on to maturity. This was the focus of Paul's ministry, as he articulates in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Paul writes, Him, that is Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all my energy that he has powerfully worked within me. And this, in large part, is the reason that Paul has penned the letter to Ephesians before us. Paul is writing to instruct the Ephesian Christians so that that church may be built up in love and grow into maturity so that they may not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. 
The foundation of this Christian maturity is the word of God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the foundation. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Those building on that are the prophets and the apostles, the words that we have before us. That is the foundation. Christian, but inside of this as well, Christians, your maturity is the work of God as Paul articulates it, that Christ himself is building this, joining it together as the church grows into a temple for the Lord. And so as we gather week after week to hear the preaching of the word of God and share in fellowship with one another, serving one another, Christ is building his church in our midst. Only this cathedral is being constructed with living stones, our brothers and sisters from past ages, and with you and with me. And this is the aim of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as we approach our text this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, this is Paul's desire in his prayer. And Paul's desire reflects God's desire that the Ephesians grow up into maturity for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so our main point this morning, God desires that we grow in maturity for the glory of Jesus Christ. Again, God desires that we grow in maturity for the glory of Jesus Christ. So look with me at Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I'll read the text and then we'll work through it together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and, or what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So our first point this morning, and this one's easy to overlook, is that growing in maturity requires prayer. Growing in maturity requires prayer. And this point is drawn from the fact that Paul prays. Now, this is not a throwaway point, because think for a minute. Paul is writing, or he's very likely dictating to someone who is transcribing while he dictates. And also, think about where the Apostle Paul is right now. The Apostle Paul is in prison. This is one of his, uh, the letters that Paul wrote from prison to the church. And at two points in this letter, Paul prays. We read one earlier this morning from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and here... So Paul has spent a, a good amount of time transcribing his prayer for the Ephesians. Now, if the point was simply to let the Ephesians know that Paul was praying, he could simply have said, I will be praying for you. But he doesn't. 
Paul specifically includes the content of his prayers into the letter for the edification of the Ephesians. Now, in Paul's time, paper and ink were not as readily available as they are today. Today, we almost view extra pens and loose-leaf paper as a nuisance, just throwing them in the junk drawer. But this was not the case with parchment and ink during Paul's time. And Paul spends valuable time, valuable ink, and valuable paper in the middle of a letter that he is dictating, offering guidance to the church to record the contents of his prayers, which highlights the significance of prayer itself and means that Paul viewed this prayer as instructive for the reader. In this, Paul is modeling the importance of prayer, and Paul is giving the Ephesians a sort of model of what to pray for one another. We're going to touch on the second of those a little later, but here I want to spend just a minute on the importance of prayer. And the importance of prayer is directly correlated with the one to whom we pray. And this is where Paul begins his prayer, looking again at verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul prays with bowed knees. This is a posture of humility because of the one to whom Paul is praying. You see, Paul does not pray to patron saint, patron saint Abraham or to patron saint Moses or to deceased relatives to give him aid and comfort while he's in prison. No, Paul goes directly to God who created all things by his powerful word, the God to whom every single human being owes existence. Paul is praying to the God in whom we live and move and have our being. Now, as we come to know God, that is, as we grow in maturity and begin to grasp more deeply the infinite power and glory, his immeasurable wisdom, grace, and love, the perfection of his holiness, we simultaneously see ourselves for what we are, finite, created, sinful, and the result of that is deep humility before the Lord of the universe. So Christian, that is the proper posture of our prayers. But we must step back and ask ourselves, do we think that God needs us? He has the entire world. Do we think that God depends upon us? He has infinite power and wisdom. As Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. You see, it is not God's privilege that we come to him. It is our privilege that we are allowed to come before the God of the universe, the sovereign creator and Lord. God does not need us. The truth is that we desperately need him. If your every heartbeat depends upon the sovereign grace of our Lord Almighty, which aspect of your life doesn't? Ask yourself this. Does your prayer life reflect this level of dependence on God? Does the posture of your prayer reflect your dependence on him? Does the frequency of your prayer reflect the fact that your very existence is dependent upon the Lord speaking? What a benefit, friend, that we can enter into the throne of grace and that in grace and mercy our God hears our prayers and that he answers us. 
Growth in Christian maturity requires prayer because growth in Christian maturity is fundamentally dependent upon God. Therefore, Christians, pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for one another. And as Paul continues, he gives us a model of the things that we can and ought to pray for one another. And so Paul continues his prayer, which consists of two petitions, both of which are necessary for Christian growth for growth in Christian maturity, which leads to our second point this morning. Growing in Christian maturity requires strengthening by the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This harkens back to what Paul has said earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. There Paul writes, In him that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The indwelling spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament as one of the benefits of the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, the Lord promises that a day is coming when he will give his children a new heart and he will place his very spirit within them. That day came when the Lord poured out the Holy Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost following the ascension of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. And the result was the building of his church. Here again, Paul is praying for the growth of the church. Again, not numerical growth, but but spiritual growth into maturity. In the same way that you and I cannot force a tree or a body to grow, human effort alone cannot bring spiritual growth to pass. We can plant a tree. We can water that tree. We can prune that tree. We can provide good soil and nutrients for that tree. But we cannot actually make that tree grow. And in the same way, Christians, our growth is dependent upon the work of the Lord in us. Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There is the command for us to work. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our working is dependent for effectiveness upon the very working of God. Just like that tree, we know that growth comes through reading the Bible. We know that growth comes through prayer. We know that growth comes through serving one another in fellowship. But none of those things is effective to actually cause growth apart from God working in us. So let's press into this as we look a little bit closer at what Paul's saying. In verse 16, Paul prays for the Ephesians to be strengthened according to the riches of God's glory. The riches of God's glory, or God's wealth, which is God himself. Let's think about God's value for a minute. How much money or how much gold would it cost to buy God? Remember, Satan offered Christ all the kingdoms of the world. That is universal, global power, and Jesus turned it down because it was already his. 
The notion of purchasing God should strike us as patently ridiculous because apart from God, nothing even exists with which to buy him. The riches of God's glory is God himself, the eternal, infinite, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, all-knowing, all-wise creator God. That is the one that we are contemplating purchasing. But it is this God who Paul petitions on behalf of the Ephesians to strengthen them according to his spirit. And the storehouses of riches that Paul begs God to strengthen them with is the riches of God himself. Christian, the power working in you is the very power of God because the one indwelling you is God of very God. Now, don't think of indwelling like the inverse of demonic possession, as we've seen in the movies like The Exorcist. Indwelling here is speaking about God's intimate, covenantal presence with his people and his special work in their midst. Particularly here, that we would be strengthened in the inner man. The inner man is our interiority. It's the heart, the place where our decisions are made, the place where we, val we weigh values and desires. So Paul's prayer is that God would marshal all his resources to strengthen the Ephesian Christians right there at the central power of, the, of their source, the central power source. Because growth in maturity requires that our desires and values and decision-making are brought in line with the Word of God. And the only way, Christian, that we can do that is through the power of God working in us. Effectively, this is what Paul is praying, or Paul is praying to bring to pass what he writes in chapter 2 verses and verse 22. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what Paul is praying. Out of the abundance of the riches of the glory of God, the Holy Spirit gives us life and strength. How glorious is our salvation? Can you imagine if your growth was solely dependent upon you working? What meager resources do we bring to the table in comparison to our sovereign father, the God of the universe? This reality should not drive us to fatalism, but it should drive us to our knees in prayer as we seek the same thing that the apostle Paul did. Lord, strengthen me, strengthen the church according to, you, to the riches of your glory. If you want to grow in Christian maturity, you need to be calling upon the Lord, and you need to ask your brothers and sisters to call upon the Lord on your behalf. And the beautiful thing is that the Lord promises through his word that he will answer. Christian, do you want to grow in maturity? James chapter 1, verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, even as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. If you are in Christ this morning, God's will for you is that you are growing in holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Later in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that we have been saved or that we are God's workmanship created in Christ for good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
This is the work of the Spirit, that we would produce good fruit and that we would cut off sin in our lives. And these are the resources available to us. The working of the Lord God Almighty, if we would but call out and keep on calling until he answers. God himself will come to our aid. And so I urge you, pick a few people this week. Pick a few people from our congregation and pray this prayer for them. Open your Bible and pray that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant several of your brothers and sisters to be strengthened with power through the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. This prayer is the prayer both that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and, they will, and that they will imitate him or be conformed to his image. And we can have confidence that God delights to answer this prayer. Christians, let us concern ourselves more about the spiritual state of ourself and our friends and our family than we are concerned about other things. Growing in maturity requires the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is available to us if we would just pray. And this leads us to the next of Paul's petitions, that growing in maturity requires knowing the love of Christ. Growing in maturity requires knowing the love of Christ. Look at verses, uh, the end of 17, 18, and 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Here again, Paul is praying for strength. But this time, that God may strengthen the Ephesians to know the love of Christ. Paul segues from his first petition into the second with, with the phrase being rooted and grounded in love. In this statement, Paul gives us two metaphors to explain the function of love in the Christian life. Being rooted is an agricultural metaphor with a progressive sense to it that is continuing to increase. Think about watching a tree grow. As we watch the tree grow up, simultaneously the tree is going, growing down. A tree is rooted and becoming ever more rooted. That is the Christian life in the love of Christ. That we are rooted in the, in the love of Christ, but that we are continuing to grow, progressively growing into that very love. The second metaphor is a construction metaphor. Grounded or having its foundation. Whereas the first metaphor was progressive in sense, this metaphor is static, to be established, concrete. And you think about the foundation of a house. If you're going to build a house, you don't want a foundation that's wiggling. And if you're going to build a skyscraper, you don't want the foundation for a ranch-style house. Because the foundation, which is set, gives you the trajectory of the whole structure. And so here we have that, that we are rooted and grounded, that our foundation is established in the love of Christ. This point is summarized well by Peter O'Brien when he says, love is the soil in which believers are rooted and will grow the foundation upon which they are built. To highlight the sense, think for me, for just one second, about Paul's usage of the word love in the book of Ephesians. In, uh, Paul begins Ephesians by praising God for his work of redemption, 
which begins with God's predestination of, belie- of believers, the end of verse 4, into verse 5. And he writes, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Our, adopt, our predestination unto adoption, that is, before the foundation of the world, was grounded in the love of God. Paul begins chapter 2 by painting a picture of the state of man apart from God that is hopeless and depraved. All people apart from God are dead in their sins, enslaved to Satan, under the wrath of God. And in verse 4, Paul reveals our salvation from that deplorable state by saying, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been saved. The ground of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ or of Jesus Christ is the love of Christ. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. We all know that verse. The redemptive work of Christ is the revelation of the love of God. But Paul applies this more as he continues on into the latter half of Ephesians, which is the more practical half. There the apostle Paul says in 4:12, Christians are to speak the truth in love so that, Ephesians 4, 6, the church, church builds itself up in love. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Husbands, Ephesians 5, 25, are to love your wives. How? as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Paul concludes, Ephesians 6, 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So we see as we examine the notion of love through this epistle, how central this notion of love is to the Christian life. That we as the church are built up into maturity in love. That as we imitate Christ, we are to imitate the love of God to one another. Paul's point with all of this, Christian, the love of God in Christ is the ground upon which we walk. It is the air that we breathe. Therefore, may the words that we speak and the lives that we live reflect this very love. Simply, be imitators of God. And so here, in Paul's prayer, he is not speaking about our love for Christ. Rather, Paul is praying that the Ephesians will have strength that is according to the riches of God's glory, strength to comprehend the love of Christ. Christian, the love of Christ is so immense It is so surpassing anything that we can ever think or dream of that we need God to strengthen us to be able to comprehend it. Paul shows us this immensity in two ways. First, that we may comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth. That is not to say that Christ's love is a cube, but that is to say that the the spatial dimensions of Christ's love are so vast that if you were to go as high as you could, you would never reach the end of it. If you were to dig as deep as you could in a lifetime, you would never hit the bottom. If you were to run as far as you could in any direction, you would never hit the end of it. So vast is the expanse of the love of Christ. That, uh, but that is not to say that we cannot know it. 
as Paul prays, that we would know this love of Christ which surpasses knowing. But the fact that Paul is praying that God will give us strength to know just tells us that this is not ordinary love. This is something different. This love is so rich. This love is so deep that we need God's help to grasp it. It is knowable, but it surpasses knowledge. Christian, as we think about what what it costs or how, how we come to know this love of Christ, do you know what it costs for your sins to be forgiven? Do you know what it costs for your soul to be redeemed from the just judgment of God? Paul highlights this in Ephesians 5 when he urges the Ephesians to walk in love as imitators of God. The love they are to imitate is that love of Christ, where Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Apostle John explains this sacrificial notion in 1 John 4.10. He writes, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. That is, Christ died as a wrath-bearing substitute for the sins that you and I have committed against a holy God. Because of our sin against a holy God, we have incurred the wrath of God. God is holy, and God is righteous, and God is just. Therefore, God cannot simply overlook wrongdoing. As a just judge, God must punish evil, and our sin deserves death. Physical death, yes, but also eternal destruction. The only solution is that that debt would be paid for us, that God's justice would be satisfied, and that God's wrath would be appeased. But friends, how can sinful human beings, those of us who have committed these sins against God, when Isaiah says that our very best works are as filthy rags. How can it be that we would offer something to God that would turn his justice, that would would satisfy his justice? Left to ourselves, we cannot satisfy God's justice. Left to ourselves, we cannot propitiate God's wrath. And because of this, the most pressing for the question for all humanity is, how can our sins be forgiven? How can we be made right before a holy God? We need a mediator. We need someone who is righteous, who can stand in our place. We need someone who is willing to take our punishment and bear it for us. But we also need someone who can give us righteousness. And in this is love, that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took to himself a perfect human nature. He lived for 33 years under the law, never once transgressing that law. He was perfectly righteous, and yet he was accused of crimes that he did not commit, and he was ultimately executed for those crimes. 
He was stripped naked and he was whipped before a crowd. He was insulted and reviled and spat upon. He was forced to carry the heavy wooden cross through crowds of people, through Jerusalem to Golgotha. And on that hill, nails were driven through his hands and through his feet. And he was hung on a cross in brutal shame and ignominy before a people who hated him and were calling for his execution. Blood pouring from gaping wounds, lungs filled with fluid, pain so excruciating that the Romans would not even subject their own criminals to this sort of torture. The wrath of God was being poured out upon his broken body while the torments of hell were being unleashed upon his soul, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friend, that is what our sin deserves. That's what it deserves. Are any of you willing to pay that for me? Because I'm sure not willing to pay that for any of you. And I can't even pay that for myself. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. God's justice, Christ died. Willingly, Christ faced this punishment so that God's justice would be appeased, so that God's wrath would be turned away on behalf of his people. And he did this while we were still his enemies. That is love. That is real love. If you are with us this morning and you don't know the love of Christ, we invite you. This is yours by faith. This is ours by faith. We've done nothing to earn this. This was all earned by the Lord Jesus Christ for his people, and it is ours by faith alone. The love of Christ is what people spend their entire lives looking for. And Christian, we have found it. And we will spend the rest of our lives seeking how to grow in the knowledge of this. And we will spend all eternity basking in the glorious immensity of this love. What Paul says is that we are grounded and rooted in love. This is what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about trite sentimentality. He is talking about blood-bought love. And when Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is what Paul is talking about. And as we begin to understand something of the fullness of the love of Christ, it changes us. It grows us up into him. It shapes our affections. It shapes our priorities. It reorients us to what truly matters, namely Jesus Christ and his glory. Knowing this love and imitating this love to one another is what growing in Christian maturity means. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All Christians speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body so that it grows, so that it builds itself up in love. That is what Paul is talking about. Christian, do you want to grow? You will never understand the love of Christ until you understand the heinous depths of rebellion and sin that reside in your heart. You will never understand the love of Christ until you understand what we deserve from a holy God because of our sin. You will never understand the depths of the love of Christ until you understand what it cost him 
to secure your redemption. And so we must do two things. We must pray. We must pray that the Lord will reveal these things to us and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not knowledge that we come to on our own, but this knowledge is revealed to us by our God who loves to reveal this. We are dependent upon him. And this is not about self-improvement, but this is about the growth of the whole church for the glory of Christ. So pray that the Lord would reveal this to you, but pray also that the Lord would do this work in your brothers and sisters around you. But the second thing that we must do is we must dig into the word of God. God is the one who reveals these things, but God does not reveal these things apart from his word. So Christian, do you want to know the love of Christ? Pray and read and speak with your brothers and sisters about these things and then pray and read some more. We never outgrow praying and reading. And as I've mentioned, this is all for the glory of Christ, which is our final point this morning. Maturity requires that we delight in God's glory. And this is where Paul concludes his letters. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As we think about our prayers, we can have confidence that as we pray in accordance with the will of God, that God will answer our prayers. God delights to grow his children in maturity, and God is the one who has power to do it. And Paul has confidence that God will do this because God's glory is tied to the flourishing of the church. And this is where Paul sets his focus on the glory of Christ. And again, remember, where is Paul writing this letter from? Paul's writing this letter from prison. So think of Paul's petitions in light of that. If, if we were looking at Paul's state today and identifying things to pray, the first thing we would pray is get Paul out of there. But that's not how Paul prays. Trials, persecutions, afflictions, they all seek to draw our eyes away from the glory of Christ when it's at that very point that we need to see the glory of Christ more so that we are held fast to him. We must remember that the end of all things is not our comfort or our personal prosperity, but that the end of all things is that God would be glorified. And so even in the midst of trial and difficulty, Paul does not misdiagnose the situation, and he does not result or resort to treatments that are contrary to the word of God. But Paul keeps his point on the purpose in Christ, which is to grow the church for the glory of Christ. And so even in his suffering, he remembers the Ephesians. He prays for the Ephesians to encourage them, praying for them to grow in Christian maturity. Christian maturity is a growing focus on the glory of Jesus Christ and an ever-diminishing focus on ourselves. And just like everything else this morning, this requires the work of the Spirit. How can it be that someone in the midst of difficult circumstances would be more concerned about the spiritual well-being of a church many miles away than they are about their own circumstances? How can it be that someone in the midst of suffering would spend time praying for someone else and not just for themselves? And as we think about our theme this year, called to counsel, 
One of the best ways that we can love and serve one another, one of the best ways that, that we can counsel one another is that we would be praying for one another, that you and I would be praying for the members of Faith Community Church, praying that we would be strengthened by the inner man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, strengthened there, praying that we would comprehend together the immensity and the surpassing worth of the love of Jesus Christ. Praying that the love of Jesus Christ would then be imitated in our midst as we relate to one another in love. And praying, brothers and sisters, that all of these things, that all of our lives would be directed ultimately unto the glory of God, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that we would labor to see the church built up in love, bound together in Christian maturity. Please pray with me.